All right. Well, we're working on some cell system adjustments and changes, so we'll get through that. Uh, just, just as a note, guys, the guitar came through in the last note, the last two notes. <laughs> so whatever that last change was, that worked. We found a ring. Um, it was back by the drinking fountain. This isn't, this isn't anything to get excited about. It's some kind of ring might be important to you, though. Looks like it's a copper or copper or brass ring. I'm just going to put it here. It's pretty small. Doesn't fit even my pinky. I'm assuming maybe it's a child's ring. So if your kid is crying about losing the ring, or if it's you and I just made you feel terrible that I called this a child's ring, what I really meant was you have nice slender fingers. Okay, that's what I meant. But that ring is right, is right there. All right. Well, as you saw from that bulletin, there's quite a number of holiday-related things coming up. Uh, if you enjoy fellowship with others, now, now's the time to come to church. There's a lot of things on that list. There are lots of opportunities to come spend time with other believers. And I'm excited about it because that's one of the best parts about coming to church is the gathering of believers. I enjoy a singing praises to the Lord. Obviously, you see that. I might enjoy it more than anyone else. And so some of you are like, well, at least, at least he likes it. So there's one, there's one person. But obviously, I like singing songs to the Lord and something I hope you do too. And we all do it in our own different way. We all have our own different styles and preferences and what have you. And yeah, that's not the point. The point is the object of our worship is the one that we want to be focused on. We want to be focused on the words of our worship, the meditations of our heart that then communicate themselves through the words that we sing, the words that we say. We want to be thinking about even a church gathering, as even the opportunities to bow our heads together and pray. Now, a couple of opportunities to do that. And then we have the opportunity today to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember Christ's death until he comes again. But as much as anything, the church is described as a body of believers that ought to be tightly joined together. And so when we come together, there's no better expression of our closeness, the proximity that we have with one another, than when we're actually in each other's presence. We're in, we're in closeness to one another. And what an enjoyable time. So we have a number of things Coming up, there's the Christmas program, there's a Christmas Eve service, there's a meal, there's a few, I think three meals coming up, there's a New Year's Eve um, opportunity to gather for a meal, a late lunch after church that day, followed by games and hanging out, have your kids bring their snow pants, their outdoor things, their boot hockey things, their snowshoes, whatever it is, bring that stuff on that New Year's Eve day, it falls on a Sunday, so what a, what a fun thing. Stay as long as you want. If you've got to run home for a nap and then come back, that's fine too. I, I might do that. <laughs> but yeah, it's an opportunity for you to spend all day here if you want. You can ring in the new year here as long as you shut the lights off before you leave. And so think about those things, and I hope you're here even praying about them, that they would help us to even grow closer together, which is God's desire for our family of faith here. We're going to have a word of prayer here, and then we're going to dive into our text for this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, as has been mentioned. Thank you that you've given us one another, that that's in fact one of our biggest blessings, is that you didn't leave us 
alone in terms of without you, you gave us your spirit, so that started with that. Obviously, you made a way for us to be saved, we, we know that, but then you also gave us one another, a family, a body to be a part of, where other people's giftedness and, and strengths would offset some of the things we're not as strong in, and then you could utilize some of our giftedness and strength to fill in what's lacking in, maybe in another person's life and to join together that we would be a body that would be able to effectively live out the mission that you've given us, which is to be bright lights for Jesus Christ as we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse world that is not interested in the light of Jesus, but that we could together effectively shine your light into those dark recesses so that the light of the gospel could be known in our community. Pray that we would see how blessed we are to be a part of that. Pray that we would see that you want us to live our lives in, the kind of, in a way that would point to your goodness and that your goodness would be reflecting through our lives as your spirit works in our lives as we yield ourselves to the direction that your spirit wants to lead and undertake and and, and direct us and pray that we would see that when you're doing that and your goodness is flowing and emanating out of our lives, that other people would see that, that they would see that as hopefulness, that they would see that we have something different that they don't have and that they may even ask us for the reasons of the hope that is in us. Pray that when we think about that, we would see that God wants us to live lives in a way that you could be seen through our lives. Pray that we would not try to pump that out through just self-determination, self-help plans, self-independent thinking and doing it through our own strength, but we would allow you to make that way of life possible in us. Pray that you'd undertake with this message this morning that it'd be encouraging to those that are here, that it would be accurate and clearer. Pray that you'd undertake with the other teaching that's taking place in Sunday school classrooms, that that teaching would have an impact on the hearts of the young people who are here. Pray that collectively we, we could be bright lights for you and that everything that is said and done here would bring you honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Be Ready Always. Be Ready Always. And I probably would only, you'd probably only have to see those words and most of you, or many of you anyway, would know what passage I'm referring to from the Word of God. We're going to be, Lord willing, taking a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 this morning as I'm going to be covering a few, sort of, I don't want to call them random, but a few independent passages, I would say, before I get into a book-by-book study starting in January. We'll be having some holiday the season of Christ's birth related content coming up here in the next few Sundays as well. That's what you have to look forward to. But as we think about that phrase, be ready always, probably 1 Peter 3.15, at least the B part, the middle of the verse came to mind. And that says, of course, and always be ready to give a defense to, and depending on your version, might be would say an answer, a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And that, of course, is one of the best known and most commonly quoted verses or principles in the Bible, certainly as it relates to our church. We've had a very heavy evangelistic focus over the years about proclaiming the need to share the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done with a lost and dying world. 
And so if that's the focus or part of the mission statement of the church even, so to speak, this that we could collectively be a bright light into the darkness around us by doing what? Not shining ourselves, but reflecting Jesus Christ, making him bigger. If that's the mission, then naturally we would be fond of a verse like this that says, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And so as you think about this verse, it's often quoted or paraphrased in support of the need to actively and intentionally evangelize the lost with the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of who Jesus is and what he's done, his death, burial, and resurrection on behalf of sinners like you and I. Now, what's interesting about this verse, certainly you can take that principle from this verse, but it's not the primary principle of the verse. You see, while self-initiated evangelism is appropriate and needed, I recently observed that this isn't the primary point or takeaway of this passage. And sometimes we, you know, we'll grab something, I guess, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a takeaway sometimes that isn't even maybe the primary takeaway. And it doesn't mean the takeaway that we've, t- we've had or that we've been utilizing is wrong. It just means it isn't the primary emphasis of the passage. And so as I was looking at this, I don't even recall why I was looking at this verse. I think it had something to do with my hope is in the Lord was the theme for a recent retreat that we did for our young people. And I was looking at some verses about hope. And this is one of the ones that I reviewed. And as I was, we were kind of thinking about covering all three phases maybe of the Christian life, salvation from the penalty of sin, Uh, salvation from the power of sin and then the future salvation from the very presence of sin in relation to that phrase of my hope is in the Lord. I'm confidently putting my trust or dependence on God to do for me what I could never do for myself in each of those phases of my my life experience or my the Christian experience. And so I think perhaps that is why I ended up looking at at this verse and I think I think that caused me to just read it a little bit more closely than I had in the past. Sometimes you, if you get the idea that there's a certain takeaway from a verse, you might keep reading it, keep quoting it, keep saying it, but never really read it, read it. Like read it with the sense of what does this really mean? What is this really saying? So instead of promoting self-initiated evangelism, again, which is appropriate and needed, this passage encourages a manner of living that actually prompts an unbeliever to initiate a conversation with you about the gospel. Very, very different in in the sense of both needed, but very different emphasis. This emphasis is not on self-initiated evangelism. This is this verse's emphasis on is living a life or conducting ourselves in a way that would cause somebody else to initiate a conversation with you about the hope that is in you. And so let's take a look at this passage. So if you're the kind of person who maybe struggles to have a takeaway, jot that down. That's what this is about. It stands for this idea that God wants us to live our lives in a way that would allow him to produce in and through us a manner of living, a manner of responding to even circumstances that would make somebody say, wow, there's something different about that person. And it's so different that I'm actually gonna ask them to give an answer, to give a defense about the reasons for the hope that is in them. So let's take a look at this passage here this morning. Now, we don't have time. We're also gonna try to get through communion this morning, and I don't mean mean it in the sense of get through it like we have to get through it. It's some kind of a burden, but we have to fit it in the time that we have here this morning. So 
we can't go through all of these verses in really great uh, detail, but I want to give you some of the context that leads up to this. So if you were to pick up in verse 8, let's read through verse 8 through, now we can just read through all the way through 12. So picking up in verse 8 of chapter 3, finally he says, and of course this isn't the end of his letter, it's just it's, he's working to conclude this thought and what was the thought about? The thought was about all of these different ways that people should respond or deal with others in their life. He had talked to wives, he had talked to husbands, he had talked to others, and he's now summarizing it to some extent, uh, but he had been primarily focused on uh, godly living within the home in the earlier verses, but now he says finally, because now he's going to quit making specific applications and to make an application to all believers everywhere. Now finally, all of you, these are more general exhortations, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, returning those things with blessings knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing yourself. It'll benefit you to respond that way. Verse four, four, now he's in a quote from the Old Testament. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. We don't respond to evil with more evil. We don't even repeat evil. We're, not, we're told to not even speak of evil, yet often we find ourselves talking about evil. We're not even supposed to be mentioning some of it. And his lips from speaking deceit, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. There's supposed to be a contrast in the lives of believers between good and evil. We're not supposed to look just like the lost around us. We're supposed to have put on the new man and allow the spirit of God to produce in us through the power of his spirit, a way of life that would be godly. So let him turn away from evil and do good. That's God's objective for you. And what goes along with that? Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He's favorable. That means God is favorable. He has a favorable disposition. He's pleased by those that are living right. And his eyes are open to their prayers. There's fellowship with God when we're walking in dependence on the Spirit of God to lead in our lives talking about fellowship there. That's not talking about losing salvation or something along those lines that if I'm not doing what's right, then I've lost my salvation. No, I don't have God's favor and I'm not in fellowship with God when that's true. But the face of the Lord is against. It's not favorably disposed to, toward those who do evil. God cannot have fellowship with us while we're rebelling and rejecting him and we're not operating by means of or the influence or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When we're walking by under the influence of the sin nature of the flesh, then in those moments, we're not in a posture where we can experience the fellowship with God or be living a life that's pleasing to God. And we certainly can't benefit spiritually or thrive in that environment. So he quotes that. So that's the setup as we're coming into this. Verse 8 through 11, verses 8 through 11, they're providing this list of exhortations to all believers relative to proper Christian thinking in a proper corresponding manner of living. Now, sometimes we're reluctant to talk about what godly living looks like because the temptation is then to focus on the external, the outcome, the, the end result. Knowing, not realizing or not remembering that though God intends that specific end result, God isn't 
God isn't wanting us to focus on producing that. He wants to produce that outcome in and through our lives as a byproduct of us enjoying him, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, walking by means of the Spirit or under the influence of the Spirit of God. So too often, if we talk too much about trying to quantify or paint a picture of what godly living looks like, for one, we'll ignore the fact that there isn't a cookie-cutter way that that would look is God's way of directing each and every different believer would be slightly different, that we can't all fit into an exact mold. There'd be general principles that we could draw forth or put forth, but that God's way of working in your life and directing you includes a, a, a heavy dose of Christian liberty and a heavy dose of individuality. Now, there'd be some generally true principles that you could look at. But the tendency of many, many, many churches, even if they get the gospel message right in terms of first tent salvation or the gospel message about what Jesus Christ did to provide a a way of rescue or redemption for a lost and dying world through his sacrifice in our place, his substitutionary death in our places, he atoned for our sin by shedding his blood on our behalf as he died in our place bearing our iniquity, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing our guilt on Calvary. And as he died in our place, he said it is finished. The sin debt penalty owed by every man, woman, and child on planet earth for all time has been fully satisfied such that salvation, salvation from what? Salvation from sins penalty is available to all who will. Let them come and drink freely of the water of life that Jesus offers. Now, how do I do that? The Philippian jailer had a very similar question. Sir, what must I do to be saved? Saved from the hell I deserve to a heaven I don't. What must I do though? Because that's the natural tendency. I must do something. And the answer was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What? Accept. To believe something is to accept or put your confidence in a solution that was already provided by another, Jesus Christ, on behalf of the hopeless and helpless and hellbound sinner, you and I. And so as Jesus was willing to take our place to pay our debt, to provide a way where there was no way, we're asked to respond to that by faith apart from works. Now, apart from works means apart from human merit, apart from church rituals, apart from human goodness. All of our works of righteousness are our best attempts at providing or producing human rightness or godliness. Apart from including God in that process, he can't honor that. So he's saying, I need you to respond in faith. To respond in faith is to accept freely the free gift that God offers through the person and work of his son. So when he says that, for by grace... God giving us something that we do not deserve, unmerited favor. You've been saved. Saved from what? A hell you deserve. To heaven you don't. By faith. By faith. Just like John says over a hundred times in the gospel of John, believe, 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 believe. Believe and receive and you will be saved. But it's not of works, it says. You've, it's faith apart from works. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it excludes works. And that's why grace is so hard for people to accept. That's why when you go to a church that even can teach that salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, apart from human merit or works, and you can find some of them. They're few and far between because if you read through the lines, either overtly or indirectly, they're suggesting that in fact you do have a part in this, that you must do your part. You must kick in your 10 cents to God's 90 cents. He made a 90% investment. He didn't quite carry the ball across the finish line, but 
If you do your part, you can finish this thing off. They'll either say that directly or indirectly. Just listen closely to what they're saying. But even when they get the gospel right, too often then, when it comes to Christian living, you're now already born into God's family. That happens at a point in time. At a point in time, you have a physical birth. At a point in time, you have a spiritual birth. And when you've been born into God's family, as Jesus explains to Nicodemus, you're born into this. You have to have this spiritual birth that comes through what? Well, he gets the same passage. He says this very verse, John three sixteen, To Nicodemus, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what, believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. But he's talking about that's the, me- the means by which a sinner can be made right with God by the ba- on the basis of accepting the substitutionary payment of Jesus Christ. Now I rush through that. I understand, I understand that. Maybe that was new to you. But in those churches, oftentimes they maybe understand that. But then when it comes to living a life that will please God, all of the focus is on externals, on you must not do this, you must not do this, you must not do this, you must change this, 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 and this, and this about yourself in order to please God or to live a life that would make God happy. And the focus is over and over and over again on behavior instead of this ongoing relationship of dependence that the believer is supposed to have where they're tied into the power source of the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God can produce in them a manner of living that would please God in time that is impossible through human effort. And so we fall right back into a human effort driven message of how can I be saved from the power of sin in my life, my daily Christian life? How can I be saved? Try a little harder. Do a little bit more. Focus on excising from your life all of these things that are opposed to God's standards. Now, may those things be present? Yes. Does God want to take them out of your life? Yes. Did he create you unto good works? Yes. But is your focus on good works or or taking those things out of your life? No. Then that puts the focus on your life or you instead of the source of victory. The source of victory is if you abide in me, if you stay connected to me, what happens? My resources can come up through the trunk, flow out to the branches to you so that you then can bear fruit as a passive byproduct of staying connected to the right power source. That's the message of second tense salvation or progressive sanctification. Practical sanctification. We have positional sanctification at a moment in time based on a decision to accept by faith what Jesus Christ has already done for us. That's the moment we're born again or we're saved from the penalty of sin, but we have practical sanctification where God looks at me and he says, I see you positionally as set apart because I see you in my son who is perfect. Your identity is now wrapped up in his as you're tied to him and you can never be let go of that. He says, I'll never let you go. So positionally, God will never again look at you in condemnation because he sees you in the standing of the work of his son, which you accepted by faith alone. But now, when you're looking at the Christian life, that practical sanctification, being set apart for the holiness that God has planned for our lives, the, the works that God wants to do through us as a reflection of him so that he could do what? He could illuminate the darkness through our goodness. But it's not our goodness, it's God's goodness working through us. And that's what this passage is ultimately about. So it'll do you no good to get saved. Well, that'll do you good. I take that back. <laughs> that will be wonderful. That will be wonderful. Hey, rewind that tape. Rewind that tape. Let's go back on that. That will do you a tremendous amount of good in the, at a point in time and in the future, but it's not going to do you any good in terms of enjoying the life that God has planned for you in time. 
And so many churches get it wrong because they don't understand the difference between practical sanctification and positional sanctification. And that's why the focus is all on works, works, works. What have you done? The fruit of your life. What, what, what is the evidence of your faith? There's no evidence of faith. Faith is a decision to put your confidence in what something, someone else has done for you. The evidence of your faith then would be evidence of your present uh, willingness to trust the Lord, allow him to make changes in your life so that there would be fruit in your life, so that there would be good works in your life, so there would be external evidence of God's working in your life, not to prove that you were saved, but to attract people to the light of Jesus Christ. The, the point isn't to prove something. The point is to be a reflection of Jesus Christ in my life so that I could have an impact on the lost. I could illuminate the darkness through the light of Jesus that's now shining through me in my everyday practical life. I'm not focused on it, though, as a way of feeling more confident that I was saved from the penalty of sin. I was saved from the penalty of sin by throwing my hands in the air in effect and saying, I can't do anything to contribute to this. I'm gonna put all of my dependence on what God has done for me. I'm gonna accept that. Then the Bible talks about how as a result of that new birth, you're a baby in Christ and as a newborn baby in Christ, God wants you to grow. How do you grow? Through the word of God, through the work of the spirit of God who is working to teach us things, to illuminate our thinking through the fellowship and the coming alongside of and the building up of other believers so that I could grow in faith. Grow for what purpose? So that I could serve the Lord. Serve the Lord how? Serve the Lord by allowing him to produce through me a way of living that is good, a way of living that is right, a way of living that does reflect positively on him so that I can prove I was saved? No, so that I can be a reflection of Jesus in the lives of the lost around me. Now, if you want more on that, if you want to talk to me more about that, come talk to me because that's something that is very commonly misunderstood. So what is happening here in our context? In our context, that is what is being advocated here, that we would live our lives in the kind of way that these exhortations that are being made would be true of us as empowered by the Spirit of God working in us so that other people might see something different about us. Again, the focus is on enjoying the Lord. The focus is on depending on the Lord, staying connected to him, staying humble, remembering the pit that we were dug from. The focus is on abiding in the vine. The focus is on taking in the nourishment of the word of God. And as God gets a hold of our thinking as we're enjoying him, he naturally then says he will direct our steps. He will direct our paths. He will then never direct our paths in a way that would not please him, in a way that would be incompatible or inconsistent with his purpose, his will, or his will for our lives. So I hope that's clear. But we look at these exhortations, there's six of them that are given here depending on how you divide them. There's six of them. And, and verse 12 is quoted then as sort of a summary of 12 and 13, no sorry, 11 and 12 as sort of a summary or a, another passage from the Old Testament to make the point or support the point that there's great value in doing what is right. Now these exhortations start with be of one mind. Be of one mind. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Now here's a passage that is that's not the passage. Here's a passage that talks about the same idea. This isn't unique in, in terms of an exhortation that's being made to believers. To believers. Again, it's made to people who are already saved. It's not, it's not a way to get yourself saved. It's an it's a 
exhortation or an encouragement and instruction that's made to believers. So Paul says this in Romans 12, 16. This is, of course, Peter talking here in 1 Peter 3. But he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Same idea here. Be of one mind. It refers to living in harmony and being like-minded. But be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble things. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now consider this. We could have given the whole message on this right here. Consider how same-mindedness, unity amongst believers, harmony amongst believers, having the same objective. Imagine how critical or consider how critical it is to be humble in that process. I'll tell you what. Almost any problem that you're having relationally in your life can be traced back to pride. There's no doubt about it. We don't want to talk about it, but there's no doubt about it. What's causing the problem? Trace it back far enough. Dig, dig deep enough. Scratch the surface off it and really get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter in your friendship, the heart of your matter in unforgiveness with other believers here in this church, drama that you're causing, how you're div- being divisive and you're undermining the church, you're criticizing, you're criticizing the church leadership, you're maybe even criticizing me. You're, you're, you're having a critical kind of a mindset. You come to church with a focus of, I can't wait for him to say something else I can jump on and go to my little group and mutter about. I can complain about it and criticize it and continually tear down, continually tear down. And the reason for that, of course, is that there's this mindset that says, I'm so focused on myself and making myself feel better, it's pride, it's pride, it's pride, it's pride. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Oh, I'm doing these other believers. You're doing these other believers a favor by coming to them and undermining and tearing down the body of Christ. Is that right? Is that what you're gonna go to sleep saying at night? That's, that, that's, your, that's your defense to that behavior? Oh, it comes so naturally though. Oh, I, I was once the guy doing it. Now I feel bad for the guys that are, are getting it. But I was once the kind of person who would complain and criticize about people who in, in spiritual leadership too. Man, it's not hard, is it? You guys don't even know the half of it. I could give you so much more ammunition to work with. Just come talk to me. You're not spending enough time with me if you don't feel like there's enough to work with. Hey, some of you were at basketball games I was coaching yesterday, right? Yeah, Sabrina probably has some new material here today. (laughs) Coached three basketball games in a tournament. It wasn't pretty. It was not pretty. Point just being, what's the mindset going to be? Is that a mindset of humility? Is that a mindset of building up? If you really wanted to build me up, this is just food for thought. And I'm, I'm not playing a victim here. Probably most of you aren't even doing this. Uh, the truth of it, though, is if you ever have something that you want to help somebody with, it doesn't involve gossiping to other people. It involves actually coming to that person and trying to help them with the right spirit. Not, not even with the spirit of setting them straight. With a spirit of love. A spirit of compassion. I, I, I have a heart that wants to help you. I want to come alongside you because I'm your brother. And we're going to talk about brotherly love here in a second. Now, the second thing here is having compassion for one another or have compassion for another. Now, some of you would connect that to being the same exhortation as be of one mind, but have compassion for one another could be taken 
separately. So you see that here. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Now it means to be understanding or sympathetic. The word literally means to be fellow feeling, fellow feeling. Feeling the same or being able to associate with the feelings that a fellow believer is having. Now you see the same passage in Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about the same idea. This is what it means to be fellow feeling. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's about sympathy. It's about having a compassion where you're saying, I hurt when you hurt. I can celebrate or rejoice when you're, when you're rejoicing. The next one on our list is love as brothers. Love as others. So be of the one mind, have compassion for one another, and then love as brothers. Now this is the only time that this word for love is used in the Bible, the whole Bible. The only time that this word is used, it refers to a relatable and special type of human affection, the kind of affection that brothers, siblings, blood relatives would have for one another. And there is something unique about that, normally. Not all the time, but normally. There's something you can't put your finger on where there's just something about being an actual brother of somebody that, or sister or you know, an immediate family member of somebody. There's something about that. And so that's what he appeals to here. Love like that. Even Peter realizes that's a very special kind of love. So he says love like that. And he's, he's not talking about agape, the kind of love that God has towards men. When God's love towards men is discussed, it's, the word agape is always used, but it's, that word re- refers to this intense, this intense compassionate love that somebody might have for another person, but, and in the context of, so the word itself doesn't mean sacrificial love, by the way. Um, As applied to God, it means sacrificial and selfless love. The word itself, agape love, just means big love, a compassionate love for others. It's the most common word for love. It's used in all kinds of secular uses, too. It's not just a special word describing God's love, but it's the word that's always used for God's love in any event. So we love as brothers. Now, this is just so you know, the word, the, the Greek word is like Philadelphia with an O at the end of it. So that's where Philadelphia comes from. How many of you heard Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love? That's where it gets its name. Okay, you're ready for the next, you know, the next trivia night on that. Okay, then the next one here that we see, oh, the next one here that we see is to be tenderhearted. Be tenderhearted. It refers to being full of pity or soft-hearted instead of being hard-hearted and uncaring toward others, be soft-hearted towards others, uh, being full of pity. And we see this word used in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ, or for Christ's sake, forgave you. But how did he forgive us? He forgave us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The next one is to be courteous. Be courteous, be tender-hearted, be courteous. And it refers to being humble, or humble-minded, and I've talked about that at length. That's the thing we need to pray for in each other's lives and pray for in our own lives because that's the kind of heart God can work with. The reason that the Bible says God despises pride more than anything else is because it absolutely removes any capability or capacity for him to work in your life while you're being operating with a prideful mentality. So we think about that word here, be be uh, courteous. A lot of translations actually have be humble, be humble-minded. And so I thought, well, what verse kind of talks about this 
Well, there's lots of them. Here's one I picked because we I was already in Ephesians 4.32. How about Ephesians 4.1 through 3? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, what a fun way to describe yourself. He's physically a prisoner, but he sees himself as a, do, as a doulos, a slave, but also a prisoner, a bond, somebody who's in bondage to the Lord, to the service to the Lord. That's how he sees himself, uh, practically and literally and figuratively. Now, beseech you what? I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, what would describe that worthy walk? Starts with what? Lowliness, same word for humility. With all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. It sounds like a repeat of this exact passage. Endeavoring to what? Keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Sounds a lot like be of one mind, doesn't it? And so you're thinking about these qualities, these exhortations. The last one, though, is this, and this is what leads us up into the context that we're getting at in verse 13. But First Peter 3, 8 through 9, we, we see the last one is this, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Talking about this is what I'm encouraging, I'm exhorting you for these things to describe your life, and this is the last one, and the, the rest is going to connect to this. Now, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Returning evil with blessing, returning reviling with blessing, knowing with what mindset, knowing that you were called to this, called to live above the fray, called to, to live a life that would be led and directed by Jesus Christ, that would be influenced and impacted by the example of Jesus Christ, who what? Though he was God, he made himself, humbled himself, made himself a servant, made himself a man, and he went to Calvary to die for you and I. You see so much humility in the coming of Christ as we think about the Christmas season. So now what's the byproduct of that? That, the outcome of that, the purpose of that is that you may inherit a blessing. You will be blessed if you allow that to be true through the Spirit of God working in your life. So as you think about all of those six different exhortations, they end with this reminder of the blessing associated with heeding this advice and responding practically to these exhortations. And the idea is sort of this. You were called to this. I am, I am encouraging this, that you may inherit a blessing. And blessing here, that word inherit a blessing, that is not a noun here. It's a participle. Now you're like, so what? Well, so the idea is that instead you would really read this as be constantly blessed that you may be constantly blessed. It's not just a point in time blessing, but an ongoing blessing as you allow the Spirit of God to make these things true of you. If these qualities are true in your life, these six exhortations, be of one mind, have compassion for one another, loving as brothers, being tenderhearted, being courteous, not returning evil for evil, then you will be constantly blessed. So then as we think about this immediate context then that leads up to verse 13, and well, 13 through 17, it's the persecution or mistreatment of believers and the encouraged gracious response. That's the context that's leading up to verse 13. There's this persecution or mistreatment. Evil is being rendered toward the believer. Reviling is taking place. It's not that it's not happening. It is happening, but there's this gracious response to that mistreatment or persecution. And since Peter knows that believers can and will be mistreated, he continues addressing the proper response to anticipated or unavoidable future persecution. He knows it will happen. 
So then that's the context that we get into verse 13. Important because now you're going to see maybe a little different twist on verse 13. Verse 13, and who, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now he's still connecting back to those that are being evil. They're treating you with evil. They're treating you with reviling. Okay. He's saying, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? So there's this anticipated mistreatment, but he's actually saying, if you're, if you're doing good, if you're following these exhortations as produced by the Spirit of God working in your life, if these things are true of you, who's going to be harming you? Who's going to be doing evil toward you? So it represents a rhetorical question of sorts, verse 13 here. Followers of what is good carries the idea of eager or zealous to do good. So when you look at become followers of what is good, if you are, what he's saying is if you are eager or zealous to do good, you're a follower of what is good, you're eager or zealous to do good, who is going to want to harm you for being eager or zealous to do good? Even those that don't follow Jesus Christ, those who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ, those that don't even don't understand the gospel, who is going to want to harm you when you're being zealous or eager to do good. And I think that's the primary meaning of verse 13. Some take this angle on it. What spiritual or eternal harm can, come, can the adversaries inflict on the believer? And I think that's a true principle, but I don't even think that's what he's talking about here. And we'll see that by this fourth, fourth class condition of verse 14. He's saying, who is he who's going to harm you or persecute you or mistreat you when you're zealous to do good? Now, it's also true that who, who can, you could read it as that the second group reads that, who can really harm you when you're doing what is good? You're always coming out victorious in that equation, regardless of the actual persecution that you might face in the temporal realm, in the physical realm by other people. The takeaway could, and it's a true principle, the takeaway could be who can actually harm you in a spiritual sense if God is for us, who can be against us is the idea that even when people are responding and they're repaying my goodness with evil and reviling, even then, who can really harm me in a spiritual sense if God is for me? If God is working all things together for my good? If nothing can separate me from the love of Christ? If, that's tr if those things are true, and they are, then what could really harm me? But I don't think that's the take. And the reason for that is, let's look at verse... Yeah, verse 14 here. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. So he's saying, who is going to harm you? Who is going to be interested and persecute you when you're being zealous to do good? But even if that should happen, even if that should happen that you're doing good and you're going to suffer anyway, you're going to be blessed from that. You're going to be blessed for that, so you don't have to be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, this but here ties back to verse 13. It continues that thought. This word if here, but even if, look at that little word. It's a rare fourth class condition. You can hardly find many examples of that in the New Testament. It's not normal. Because it means if, and this is a remote possibility, not if and we're going to assume that this is true or that this will happen, or if and it may or may not happen. Here it's being used, the Greek qualifies the use of if, 
if in four different ways, but this particular fourth class condition tells us that if, and this is considered to be a remote possibility, so if you should suffer for doing what is good, then you're still going to be blessed. And that's why verse 13, in my opinion, has to take the first view, which is that who is going to want to harm you when you're zealous to do good? So the idea is here, even if you were to suffer or be treated badly for doing good, for returning evil for blessing, which is what you were just doing in the context of the end of, of uh, verse 8. Even if that was to happen, you will be spiritually and eternally blessed or rewarded by God. So don't be afraid of their threats or mistreatment. That's how I would summarize verse 13, or sorry, 14. Christians are blessed regardless of circumstances of life. If God is in control, and he is. If God is desperately cares for you, and he does, there is no need to be frightened or troubled by the response of the world to what? To your acts of goodness. The context here is your acts of goodness, your zealousness to do good in response to others who don't deserve it, their mistreatment of you. And while you're responding to abuse and mistreatment with goodness, who's going to want to harm you is the idea, but even if they do, you're going to be blessed because of it. You have no reason to be afraid. See, Christians are not to be afraid of what men can do to them. You see that here in Hebrews 13, 6, which is a quotation from Psalms. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, even if this were to happen where we would be living the life God had for us, we were to be allowing his spirit to produce these qualities in us, one of which was to be blessing people when they don't deserve it. To have our lives be a blessing on others. Even when that was true then, what harm, what harm could man do to us when God is the one who guarantees that he's going to bless us, that we're going to be blessed, that we're going to be rewarded for being willing to allow him to work in our lives? Nothing, nothing bad can come from that. Now physically, yes. Physically speaking, we may face actual physical persecution and physical harm. But God will work it together for our good and for his glory. He promises that. Now verse 15. Here we finally get to our verse for this morning. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So but serves to introduce an alternative to being afraid or troubled. Now, it's a continuation of that thought. So even if, and this is presented as remote, that you're going to suffer persecution for being zealous to do good in the lives of those who don't deserve it. But even when that happens, do not be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled. Instead, here's your alternative. Instead of being afraid or troubled, Two alternative responses are encouraged. The first one is sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The second one is always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Let's start with sanctify the Lord God. Most versions have Christ in place of God. So sanctify the Lord Christ or Christ the Lord in your hearts. Now heart here refers to the inner aspect of man. I like to think about it as like the traffic control center of man. Made up, it's made up of intellect, your mental processes and thinking. It's made up of your emotions and your volition. So sanctify or set apart 
the Lord God in your thinking, your intellect, your place of the control center of your, of your body. And I think that's the focus here. Now, sanctify means to set apart, respect, or acknowledge. Set apart, respect, or acknowledge. In the case of God, it's acknowledging his separate, his set apart status, his, holy, his holiness. So the idea here is instead of fearing or being troubled by man, focus on and acknowledge Jesus Christ. Now, what would the benefit to that be? How would that help? Some people think that there's, a, there's some other translations of, of what you would do with this part here. But set apart the Lord God in your thinking. Meditate on him. Acknowledge him. I think that's the absolute best way to take this. Now, why would that be beneficial in lieu of fearing or being troubled by man? And the answer is, when I'm focused on or acknowledging Jesus Christ, I'm setting him apart in my thinking, then what am I able to tap into? His strength, his provision. When I'm tapped into his strength and his provision and I'm depending on his infinite care for me, his infinite love for me, his infinite provision for my every need, when that is true, am I at the same time going to be naturally fearing man or being troubled by man? And the answer is, no. I'm gonna be resting in the strength of my Savior. Now, the second exhortation here or alternative response to being afraid or troubled. Do, this is an alternative. A second one is always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now you could say it's an alternative to being afraid or troubled or you could say it's a byproduct to, to people who are seeing this zealousness that you have to be or this eagerness that you have to do good. Now, always be ready. It indicates a state of constant readiness. Now, as I was thinking about readiness, it involves planning, preparation, and practice. So if you're somebody who loves alliteration, planning, preparation, and practice. Readiness involves planning, preparation, and practice. We don't think about that enough. You can't be ready if you've not even given it any thought. What I mean by that, are you thinking about how would I put this in my own words? How would, I how would I present this clearly? If I want to, if the objective is to present Jesus Christ, to give a defense about the hope that is in me, if that's the objective, how would I prepare to do that effectively? How could I have clarity in my message? Well, I'd have to have planning, preparation, and practice. Do you, do you spend time practicing, sharing the gospel? Now, there's no better way to practice sharing the gospel than, this is going to be a shocker, actually sharing the gospel. <laughs> but a second way to practice sharing the gospel would be to treat it as if you would practice a way to enhance a skill for anything. To sit down with your kids, sit down with your family, put a gospel diagram on the table. I know some have done that with their family extensively. I hope you would think about doing that. Do not assume that your kids that are even some of the older ones that are sitting here, do not assume that they can effectively share the gospel. I taught a series of lessons along with Josh Mackey at Senior High VBS two years ago on effective evangelism. And I don't say this to belittle anyone uh, because I would have been just like them. The ability to clear, clearly share the gospel is shockingly bad. The ability to parrot Select verses is shockingly good. But the ability to actually take those verses, break them down, and see what they actually mean and how they would help you to communicate the gospel effectively is shockingly bad. And that's despite them being in senior high 
and having heard the gospel many, many times, but never having sat down with you or maybe sat down with me or sat down with others and be asked to do it. There's no substitute for doing it. You could explain or have kids watch you do layups for the rest of your life and they wouldn't know how to do a layup. How do I know that? Because there's girls that I've coached for years that still don't jump off of the right leg. Okay, it's outside step, then it's inside step, friends. Outside hand, outside hands, off the backboard and in, okay? Now, I could, I could show that and I could say that 100,000 times, and unless I kept having them do it, stop them, slow them down, do this at a walking pace now, okay? You're coming up, you're getting close. Big outside step, big inside step. Up with our outside hand, off the backboard and in. Until they do it and do it and do it, guess what? They can't do, free, they can't do layups properly. You can't share the gospel properly either if you never share the gospel and you've never given any planning, preparation, or practice to it. I can't, I can't say any more about it other than really think about it. Can you, can you do it? And when you do it, is it clear? Do you talk about man's greatest need, God's solution to meet man's need, and how mankind could get a hold of that? Those are really the key components to the gospel. You gotta lead off with man has a problem where there's, need, there's no need for a solution, a savior. Jesus was that solution, the person work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on mankind's part. The problem is that all men have sinned, they've all fallen short, the wages of sin is death, right? The solution is God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to die, be buried, and rise again as this satisfying payment, the propitiation for all men's sin. And it was offered to man by as a, as a, by the grace of God, apart from human works. Man's response is faith alone, in Christ alone, again, apart from human works. That's the gospel. And so, are you, are you prepared to share it in a way that's clear and doesn't you know, jump all over the place? In any event, we need, to, we need to move on. But that's always be ready. Now, mentally and spiritually, be ready in the context here of sharing the Christian hope. We're not talking about just being ready to do anything, but the context here is sharing the Christian's hope. Taking action relative to this readiness requires boldness. So always being ready, it requires a prayer for boldness because to be ready is one thing. To actually then move forward requires boldness. So be praying about that. Now remember this verse is bracketed between instructions about suffering. Instructions about if you are to suffer for righteousness sake and in the verse, verses before that you actually are being treated with evil. You're actually being reviled. You're just supposed to respond to it with goodness, with blessing to those that don't deserve it as a reflection of the grace of God being demonstrated in and through your life. So the text is really a call to evangelistic boldness in the face of opposition, even hostile opposition to have that readiness. Now, to ready to do what? To give a defense. This is a courtroom term. It refers to persuasive speech or argument. Now, what is involved in doing this effectively? Well, we talked a little bit about it already. Preparation and persuasiveness. You can't give a, an effective defense if it's not persuasive. It involves considering how to explain the gospel in your own words. It involves preparing to respond to arguments attacking the truth. Preparing. Again, we're talking about planning, preparation, practice. And now we've added another P, persuasive, persuasiveness. The defense is supposed to be persuasive. So, so ask people, tell people what your gospel 
proclamation is. Tell them what you normally would say. Ask them how persuasive that is. Ask them if anything could be added to it. I've had people give me feedback. You know, like when you're sharing the gospel, you're not covering this enough. Okay, something I can pray about, something I think about. What verses would I would use to bolster that? Some of the first times even here as a pastor here. Maybe the gospel message I gave wasn't as full or complete or clear as it could have been. And I, and I did actually have some feedback about one, one message that I gave. And so then you make an adjustment and you, you learn from that. Now, what's the next part of this? To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, this is the part that is overlooked. That's why this, this passage is really not well understood. To everyone who asks you, be ready always to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, this implies that there is some visible evidence of hope in your life. And in the context, what was it? It was your eagerness to do good to those who don't deserve it. It was, it was your willingness to follow the exhortations that were already previously given. The exhortations that speak to something that would be very different than the world's typical way of engaging with one another. This single-mindedness, this compassion for one another, the love as brothers, this tenderheartedness, this courteousness, this humility. This, but specifically, it's tying into the not returning evil for evil. People could see that. And they could see there's something very different here. There is hope in this person's life. See, hope is to have a confident expectation of the fulfillment that God would make of the promises that he's made to you. And do you have that confidence? Do you have the joy of the Lord as your strength? Do you have the joy of the Lord in your life? Do you have the peace that passes all understanding, keeping and guarding your heart? Is that obvious in your life? Do you have a sense of restfulness? Do you have a sense of compassion and love that is uncommon in the world around us? Do you have a sense of generosity for the many blessings that you have such that other people look at you and they're like, man, there's something different about that guy. There's something different about that gal. You have to have some visible evidence of hope in your life. Now remember, the immediate context involves, again, responding to evil with good. A Christian cannot properly discuss his hope without sharing the good news of the gospel. So if somebody were to ask you, a reason for the hope that is in you. You would have been ready to give a defense in advance, but now imagine somebody actually asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So if that occurs, that would involve sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. You don't have any hope as a Christian that doesn't start first and foremost in the gospel, isn't founded in the gospel, isn't rooted in the gospel, and that's why it always comes back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's made it possible for me to be in Christ, Christ to be in me, and for me to live a life that through dependence on God's spirit could actually produce, uh, would actually be valuable in time and in eternity. So the gospel is the reason for the hope that is in you. That's the primary reason. Then you could move on to other reasons. There's more than one. So the gospel, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the grace of God as it relates to my past need, my present need, and my future need. Okay, there's reasons for hope there. How about the many blessings in your life? There's some reasons for hope that you could discuss with somebody who says, man, why are you so different? Why are you so filled with hope? I want to know more about what's going on in your life. Now, catch this phrase, that is in you. It reminds us that this is a personal message of hope. To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. 
Now, how, what is the posture supposed to be as you share that reason for the hope that you were prepared in advance to give a defense to? What is the posture with meekness and fear, which means gentleness and respect? Not a respect toward God, a respect towards the person you're talking to. That's what that word means, respect. Meekness, again, gentleness. The vast majority have gentleness there. With gentleness and respect, it's a way that that word can be defined. Now, the framework of your evangelistic attitude concerning, or your, concerning people or your approach to people, it's that gentleness and respect. Now, ask yourself, is that the posture that you have in mind as you're approaching people? Either you're the one who's actively starting it, or they're the one who is coming to you, but is that your posture? Is that your mentality, gentleness and respect? See, your aim in evangelism is primarily persuasion, not confrontation. Your, your primary objective in evangelism is persuasion, not confrontation. Now, does it involve confrontation? Sure. But done in what? Meekness. Done in gentleness. Done with respect. To say, I hear what you're saying. Would you mind if I showed you a few passages from God's word where God actually paints a little bit different, a different picture than that. And then we can talk about it. Let's turn to this passage. Let's look at this verse. What do you think about that? Does that kind of change your perspective at all? What is your, what is your bedside manner? Is it, is it browbeating people? Seeking to confront people? taking secondary issues and making them primary before you've even gotten to talk to them about the gospel, you're spewing a bunch of rhetoric about your position on so many other things that you never even get to the gospel? And, and don't take that the wrong way, spewing rhetoric. I'm assuming you're 100% right about all those other things. I'm just saying, ask yourself, how did that, proving your point, proving you're right, getting them to change their mind about that, how did that assist you in making them receptive to hearing about Jesus and his love? I would tell you nine out of 10 times it never will. It'll turn them off. They'll be cold as ice. So we'll finish up quickly, verse 16 to 17. Continuation of this, but having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, meaning it's not always God's will though it's something that is promised for the believer. Though it was already mentioned that if you're doing good, if you have a zealousness to do good, who is going to be the one who is going to be causing you to suffer? Who's gonna harm you if you're zealously doing what's good? Treating people as they don't deserve to be treated, not responding in kind, but always responding to evil with goodness. But the idea here is giving a defense of your reasons for hope is to be done while having a good or keeping a clear conscience. Now this is a reference to living in a, God, a good or godly manner. See, if I'm, if I'm giving an answer, I want to have some credibility. If I'm giving a reason for the hope that's in me, I want to have a credi some credibility in my life. That my life itself would actually be consistent with one who is enjoying the Lord, who's being led by the Lord, who actually has put their faith in the Lord and is allowing him to make changes in their lives. That's going to make the testimony a lot more viable. Your testimony matters. Who's going to be asking you for a reason for the hope that's in you if you're living in a manner that's just as depressed and downtrodden as the world around you? 
If there's absolutely nothing different about you, who would ask you a question like this? If you're not filled with hope, if you're not abounding in hope, why would anybody ask you this? They wouldn't. So the idea is to have a clear conscience, a good conscience, because I'm allowing God to make me different, to transform me into something that is different from the world around me. I'm not being conformed to the world. I'm being transformed so others would see the goodness of God in me. Not because I'm working so hard to produce it, but because I'm so connected to God, I'm, so, I'm, I'm leaning into him, I'm allowing him to work in my life, I'm pursuing him and I'm seeking him, I'm drawing nearer to him, I'm letting his mind become my mind. And then as that's true, I can have this good conscience that, so that even that when people would defame me or revile me, they're gonna ultimately look silly. That's the idea, they're gonna look silly. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed by the testimony of the good and godly life you live as unto the Lord. They're going to be ashamed to say those things about you because your life actually will be good. It will be beneficial to others. It will be selfless. It will be sacrificial. When people are saying that about you and your overt testimony is to allow God's goodness to be reflected in you in a consistent way, people would, would say, what are you talking about? He's the kindest man I know. He's the most honest person I know. He's the most helpful person I know. He's the most loving person I know. What are you talking about? You'd have a reputation even amongst the lost for being a reflection of what? The goodness of God. And that's why the closing thought of verse 17 is remember that it's better to suffer for doing good. And you might. You might and in fact God says you will at times. But if that's what God's want, it's better to suffer for doing good than suffer for doing wrong. You know, there's no, there's no real sympathy for suffering the just re rewards or, or outcomes or consequences of our own sinful choices, our own bad choices. Okay, you're suffering. I can relate. I can relate because I've, I've been there. But that's not the kind of suffering God is saying he wants in our lives. He wants to, if we're going to suffer, to suffer for doing good. So be ready always. Maybe you've never looked at this passage in this light. Maybe it's given you something new to think about. See, people will notice, observe, and potentially be inquisitive when God's goodness is being reflected in your life and you are abounding in hope. When that's true of your life, people will notice that. They will observe that. They will potentially then ask you a reason for the hope that is in you because it's re being reflected in your life and you are actually practically abounding in hope. So I pray that that would be the case in all of our lives so that you would be ready to list your reasons for hope as people can observe and see that in your life. Now we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper here today. Some pe sometimes we refer to that as communion here in our church. If you're new, we do this on the first Sunday of every month. The Bible didn't give any clear direction in terms of how often we were to do it, but it just said as often as we do do it, it's supposed to be a remembrance of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf until he comes again. And so we have this intentional time to remember what Jesus has done. The idea that we're having in our mind is never forget, keeping this fresh in our thinking. And so the appeal to you today is if you're an unbeliever, meaning if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't have this intentional remembrance or celebration of what Jesus has done in your life if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. There'd be nothing to celebrate or remember. In fact, it'd be a tragedy if that were the case. 
If you're sitting here this morning and you've never been persuaded or convinced to put your trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, his death, burial, and resurrection for you, today's the day of salvation. There's nothing to celebrate, though, if you keep rejecting that. If you say, I don't want it, I don't need it, uh, I, I'm doing fine myself, God's going to accept me because I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. You're not good enough. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There's not one just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All have sinned and fallen short. There's none that seeks after God. There is none who is right, not even one, not one person. We're described as being dead in trespasses and sins, dead men walking. We're described as being alienated from God, estranged from God. We're described as being God's enemies. That'd be very bad news except for Jesus is said to have been the solution to that problem as he came to make things right, to reconcile us to God, to redeem us from the bondage, the slave market of sin that we were in, to break those bonds that were owed death for sin. The Bible said, said that the wages of sin was death. And if we're all sinners, then all deserve death. God in his justice could not just overlook that. There had to be a payment made to satisfy the debt that was owed. And there was only two options. Either one, I would die for the consequences of my own sin or God would provide a substitute, the spotless, a spotless lamb, a permanent lamb, a final lamb who could die in my place so that I could go free, not because I deserve it, but because of what God has done for me. Not because of how much I've done, but because of what he did. Not because of how desperately I'm seeking after him, but because of how much he was seeking after me and wanting to save me and provide for me. So the question isn't, could you celebrate the Lord's Supper? You know, depending on your, on your take, some, some, some faith traditions would actually have a, ha, take a take that not everybody could be saved. The truth is you could be saved today. You would then have something to celebrate a minute from now. In your mind, right where you sit, you could say, I haven't heard this before, but what good news this is that I don't need to do anything for God. He's already done it all for me. All I need to do is accept the gift of eternal life that he offers me. In that moment, I'll be sealed by his spirit. I'll be adopted into his family. I'll be translated from death unto life. I'll be made new again. I'll have the light of God. Now, I'll be taken from darkness and translated to light. And I'll be called a son of God. And he says that I'll be a part of his forever family and he'll never let me go. All it takes is faith, a moment, a decision to receive the gift that God is already offering you. So if you're here this morning, nothing to celebrate unless you've done that. It's actually a sad thing if you haven't. But those of you who are saved, I would say, let's be intentional here to just remember what Jesus Christ has done for us as he was willing to take our place on Calvary. Let's, let's have this be the drumbeat of our lives. Because as I'm living in light of who Christ is, what he's done for me, how much he loves me, then I'm gonna be, I should, my response be to that should be to love him, to have a growing Concern for him, a growing interest in living life as unto him. I should have a sense of dependence as I remember that I couldn't save myself at that point. I can't save myself now either. I need to depend on God to provide victory even in my Christian life. And I could operate by faith the same way I got saved by faith. I could live life by faith in a way that would constantly be putting the focus on Jesus and what he's done for me because it always again comes back to that. So let's be intentional about that. Take a moment to even uh, prepare yourself there's, we t there's a passage, there's a section in this very context that talks about not, being worth, not taking or celebrating the Lord's Supper in a manner that's not worthy. Well, that just means in a way where my mind isn't recognizing, isn't in a posture of dependence on him. 
If I'm sitting here in rejection and rebellion of him right now, how could I celebrate the Lord's Supper? That would be to do it unworthily. So let's get ourselves in a place, even take a moment to pray quickly, if need be, to, to just say, Lord, I haven't been going the right way. I acknowledge that that hasn't been right. And I want to get my focus and my gaze and my dependence back on you. And then I'll be in a posture where I can rightfully celebrate his sacrifice on my behalf. Elders, if you want to come forward at this point, we'll...